Well, I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling Residue of Soulish Condemnation. Believe it or not, I don't always think perfect thoughts. I try not to entertain thoughts that I know are not of me and not of God, but I don't always think perfect thoughts. I don't always speak perfect words. There are times where I've said something, I thought, man, I wish I wouldn't have said it quite that way. Sometimes you're able to reel those words back in through just a little simple, I'm sorry, or please forgive me. But there are other times you're just not able to reel the words back in. And I don't always do perfect deeds, although I try. I set my heart to do things right. I don't always do perfect deeds. I was candid with you this morning, and if you would be just as candid, you would have to say, me too. I don't always think perfect thoughts. I don't always say perfect words. And I don't always do perfect deeds. Yet our daddy still calls us perfect. I believe that disagreeing with daddy's declaration over us dishonors Jesus' perfect sacrifice. I'll show you in just a moment the scriptures where daddy calls us perfect, okay? Our less than perfect choices do not negate the perfect work of grace on the inside of us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, the Bible says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And I'll tell you why. Because it's a perfect grace. That perfect grace has been deposited on the inside of you and me, and it does a perfect work, and it's because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. Grace is not permission to sin. Grace is provision for sin. Our ministry has been filled with statements like that, and they have brought persecution to us through our own family and through our own friends. You see, people like to protect their sacred cows, and they get very defensive when they perceive you're about to do some cow tipping on their belief system. The finished work of grace guarantees our salvation apart from our contributions. The finished work of grace canceled all of our sin debt, past, present, and future. The finished work of grace lays us down in green pastures and leads us beside the still waters. The finished work of grace takes away the migraine of the old covenant system of law. I have a friend that I've not seen in a few years, but we used to work together years and years ago. And occasionally he would get a migraine. And when he would get them, he would have to leave work. He would have to go home and lay down in a dark environment with absolutely no noise and absolutely not move for like a whole day. And then eventually that migraine would let up. He went to the doctor for this because it was happening so often, so frequently. And the doctor ran some tests on him. And he says, well... I found out that you have an allergy, a food sensitivity, if you will, to a couple of things. It's tomato paste and chocolate. So as long as he stayed away from things like spaghetti and chili and chocolate and stuff like that, there were no migraines. So he got to be in charge of whether or not he had a headache or not. Believers would eliminate a lot of migraines if they would just quit eating from the vine of the old covenant. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 1, he said, I am the true vine. 
And then he reiterated that truth a different way when he gave his disciples the juice of the vine when he instituted the communion in the upper room. He said, I'll show you where the new covenant can be found. He said, you'll find it in my body and you'll find it in my blood. Look at me. Behold me. We can quit looking to the blood of bulls. We can quit looking to the blood of goats. We can quit looking to the blood of sacred cows. We have Jesus, the one who takes away all of our sin, and he takes away the residue of soulish condemnation. One of the most iconic responses that you hear from people who refuse to embrace the finished work of grace is this. You're giving people a license to sin. Oh, listen to me real careful. Now just tune in with me just for a moment. God didn't take away your license to sin when he gave you a new birth, but he gave you a new heart so that you wouldn't want to. Ten years ago, I used to drive truck. I don't do it anymore, but I used to drive big truck. And I had to have a special license to drive that truck. Now, I haven't drove one of those big trucks in 10 years, but I still have the license. Why don't I drive the truck? I have no need to drive the truck. I have no need to want to go out and sin. Grace doesn't give me a license to sin. Friends, let me ask you two questions, okay? Would you agree with me that receiving God's grace bears witness in your heart that you are forgiven? The night I gave my heart to Jesus, the Holy Spirit couldn't have talked me out of the fact that I knew I was forgiven. Nothing could have talked me out of the fact. I knew I was forgiven. I knew I had a new heart. I was the happiest guy in the world. Does it bear witness in your heart that you're forgiven? That's question number one. Number two, do you feel like you have been forgiven little or much? See, here's the answer to those two questions. The truth of the matter is we all had a sin debt that we could not pay. I don't care if you had to work till the cows came home, those sacred cows. You had a sin debt you could not pay, and Jesus paid it for you. That means every single one of us have been forgiven much. We've been forgiven much. So what is the response for those who have the awareness that they have been forgiven much through God's grace? Is it a license to sin? They say, well, I've been forgiven a lot. I'm going to go out and sin. No, of course not. The Bible declares that he that is forgiven much loveth much. Not sinneth much, right? He that is forgiven much loveth much. So a deeper revelation of grace makes one more loving, not more sinful. It makes one more compassionate not more sinful. It makes one more gracious, not more sinful. It makes one more tender to people, not more sinful. It's an erroneous teaching to teach someone that the awareness of God's goodness will cause them to sin more. If you find out how good God is, you're going to sin all the more. When the scriptures tell us plainly in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, don't you realize that God's goodness is meant to turn you away from your sins? If that is true, and it is, then let's preach about God's goodness and not about laws and rules. It's an erroneous teaching to teach someone that grace is a license to sin when the scriptures plainly tell us in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives 
in this present age. Now, if this set of scriptures is true, and they are, then let's preach more about God's grace and not about laws and rules and regulations. Less than perfect thoughts, words, and deeds do not make us less than perfect children in our daddy's eyes. Righteousness is a perfect gift that flows from his perfect love, manifested through a perfect grace that comes through a perfect faith, that is Jesus' faith, that he has given us. Righteousness is ours through inheritance. It's ours through a gift. It's ours through inheritance and not by perfect performance on our behalf. Here's the word picture that the Lord dropped into my spirit. Imagine you have a $100 bill and you take that $100 bill, it's crisp and clean, and you allow it to pass through the hands of the most vile men and women on earth for a few weeks and then it makes its way back to you. And then you take that $100 bill and you crumple it up and you throw it against the wall 10,000 times and you tear it and throw it in a mud puddle and spit on it and then set it up on the table. It might look something like this. Now imagine you get an uncirculated $100 bill from the bank, one that no human hand has ever touched. You put your little precious white gloves on because you don't want to get your oil from your skin on that $100 bill and you lay it up on the table. It looks something like this. Now, When you lay those two next to each other, what you see is you see one dirty and you see one clean. But here is the amazing truth. If you walk into any bank in the United States of America, those have the exact same value. I don't care how beat up it is, they have the exact same value. I've come by today to remind us that when we feel ragged and worn and dirty and torn, we are just as valuable and we are just as clean in the eyes of our Father. Oh, we're just as clean as we were the day He first gave His life to us. But when we feel dirty and distant from God, it's because of a residue of soulish condemnation that's working in our soulish realm. And that voice has lifted itself above the voice of the Spirit, and we've just given place to it. That's all that's happening. The good news is there is a way to be free from soulish condemnation, and that is what I want you to see through this message today. Residue of soulish condemnation. Residue is defined as that which is left behind. That is the definition for residue. That which is left behind. If you took a hungry three or four year old little boy and you set him at the table and you set a stack of pancakes in front of him with syrup on him, when that kid is done eating those pancakes, I guarantee he's going to have a sticky face. He's going to have a sticky fork. He's going to have a sticky hand. He might have sticky neck. I don't know what it is. I'm, you have to ask my wife about this. I'm really OCD when it comes to stickiness. I don't know. Somebody must have got me sticky when I was a kid, and I didn't like it. I hate stickiness. But one thing I hate more than stickiness on me is I hate that residue of soulish condemnation. And I've been watching grace. I've been watching God's goodness. I've been watching God's favor. I've been watching God's love set people free from that residue of soulish condemnation. My grandkids used to come over when they were smaller and you gave them anything sticky like glazed donuts or pancakes or something like that. Oh man, that used to just drive me crazy. And I'd be watching them and as soon as they were done, I'd be, don't move, you guys all sit there at the table now. And I'd go over to the sink and I'd get me a washcloth. And you can't just get cold water on a washcloth. That doesn't get rid of stickiness real well. You gotta run it for a while, get it nice and warm. You don't wanna scald the kid, but get it nice and warm. Get that rag nice and warm. And you're like, give me those hands. And you start washing up their little hands. And you know how it is 
when you start wiping across their face. They don't like that and stuff like that. But then I would go back to the sink and wash that rag off because, you know, you can't get two sticky kids with one wash rag. You got to wash it off again. I want to make sure all this stickiness is gone. So residue is defined as that which is left behind. Okay? Soulish is defined as the soulish realm, which means the mind, the will, and the emotions. That is what your soul is. And then condemnation is simply the judicial act of declaring a person guilty and then sentencing them to punishment. That's what condemnation is. So in the message title, you see what it is. It's residue. You see where it is. It's in the soulish realm. And you see how it affects us. It brings condemnation. So then the question becomes, where does this soulish condemnation come from? Sometimes people can get so religious, they start rebuking everything. We learned that growing up in a Pentecostal church that I grew up in. Just rebuke it. Man, you heard people using that word, rebuke, 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 rebuke. And I understand the word. Rebuke means to forbid something. But you just try that one time with condemnation. Just try rebuking it one time. You don't rebuke condemnation. You displace it. Condemnation is a mindset. And you displace it with a truth. Incorporated in condemnation is a wrong belief system. You believe something that's not true. As I meditated on where does condemnation, this soulish condemnation, come from, it comes from many different ways, but there are three main areas that it comes from. Number one, erroneous teaching. Number two, skewed interpretation. And then number three, runaway feelings and emotions. Now let me explain these right here because it's important to understand where something comes from. When I say erroneous teaching, what I'm saying here is this. From a child, a little baby is already in learning mode. We're already tickling it going, oh, he's such a little baby. We're already trying to teach it how to smile. Can you smile for daddy? Can you smile for daddy? Can you smile? Oh, you're such a big boy. And then we start doing the patty cake thing with our babies, right? Because we're teaching them how to patty cake and row, row, row your boat and bake the little cake and put it in the oven. I remember all those things. I did that stuff too. So from a child, we are teaching our little kids different things. They're in this learning mode, right? And they learn from their siblings, and they learn from their parents, and they learn from their neighbors, and they learn from their friends, and they learn from their family. And then they go to school, and they start learning. We teach them to walk, and to talk, and to ride a tricycle, and to ride a bike, and learn how to drive. We're teaching all these things, right? We're programming them with teaching. And they go to school and they learn from their teachers. And then on the college and they learn from their professors. And they go to church and they learn from their youth leaders. And they learn from their Sunday school teacher. And they learn from their pastors. And the truth of the matter is, not everything they learn is right. You can take a particular subject and one denomination believes it this way. This denomination over here believes it absolutely the opposite. Then you'll find those in the middle. It's all over the board. It's not like that in our math class. We don't go to math and go, what math did you take? I mean, you may have different styles of teaching it, but in the end, it's all the same. But it's not that way when it comes to spiritual things because that's where the enemy gets in and begins to work is in that spiritual area of your life to bring this confusion and whatnot. So erroneous teaching is one of the main ways this residue of soulish condemnation comes in. The next one, skewed interpretation. Listen to me carefully. I would encourage you not just to read your Bible, but to study your Bible. 
When you read something, you're left to your own interpretation. So if you don't understand what that passage is saying, you're going to just somehow make up your own interpretation to it. It's like when you dream. It's strange how your mind can make this little movie up in your head. Stuff you've never thought about in your life, and yet it did a great job. It directed it, it produced it, it edited it, and it's just like this little vignette, this little movie. It's like, wow, how did I do that? I never thought about all those things. Well, that's what we do when we approach God's Word sometimes, is we say, okay, I don't understand that, so I'm just going to say this is the way I interpret it. I'm not saying that we don't all do that, but what I'm saying is get down underneath the Scripture. Spend time meditating. There are times I will spend maybe a week or so just meditating on one or two Scriptures. Most of the messages I preach are because I took one Scripture and I just meditated on that one Scripture. I'm not out to conquer the whole Bible. I'm not out to read the Bible through every year. I mean, listen, if you want to do that, that's fine. I want to go deeper. I want to take my pace. I want to slow it down. I want to see, God, what are you saying below the surface here? And then the third one is when we trust in our own feelings and emotions. You ever do that? You know how I was telling you about the pancakes and the residue from pancakes? When I was thinking about using that as my illustration, that was not my original one I was going to use. I was going to use the illustration of a skunk because there's a woods right behind our home. And every once in a while, when I step out on that deck in the morning to go to work, I smell a skunk. Skunks are nocturnal animals. They don't come out in the day very much. They're out at night. The fact that the skunk is not present doesn't mean he wasn't there. He left behind a residue that I can still smell that I can say he was here. And so I was meditating on that along with other things one morning this past week. And when I went to step out on the porch to go to work, I opened up that screen door and there right on my deck, my eyes immediately went down and there was a skunk right there on my porch. And I shut the door real quick. Oh my goodness, I've never seen that before in my life. It just startled me so much, I shut the door. And then I looked through the doorway and I thought, oh, that's not a skunk after all. It was my shoes. It was a pair of shoes. I've got these big black shoes. I call them my lawn mowing shoes, my working shoes. I never leave them on my porch, ever, ever, ever. But the night before, I was out in the driveway hosing it all down, and it was leaking, so I got my shoes all wet, and I thought, I want to bring these in the house. They'll dry better outside. And so I set them right outside the door, but I never do that. I've been meditating and thinking about a skunk, and when I opened that door, whoa, a skunk. I felt so silly. See, what I'm saying is your feelings and your emotions will lie to you. My feelings said skunk. My emotions said skunk. Everything inside of me said skunk. It was shoes. You know, I couldn't help but think, I was thinking about this last night, that when we all get to heaven, when this is all said and done, and we're all in heaven someday, I think we're going to have something called Heavenly Funny Friday. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's going to be where God has this enormous jumbotron that you can look at. He's just going to show us all the things that he was laughing about over all the centuries of man. And I feel one of these days he's going to put his arm around me and say, son, come here a second. <laughs> oh, man, son, you remember that time you thought your shoes was a skunk? Ah, oh, I'm like, daddy. He said, I'm going to show that one today, okay? I'm going to say, daddy, uh, don't show that one. That might, might embarrass me. He says, he's going to say, son, there's no condemnation in heaven. I say, okay, daddy, let's watch that. I think we tickle him sometimes. 
Do you understand my point? This is how this stuff creeps in. It creeps in through erroneous teaching. It creeps in through skewed interpretation and then runaway feelings and emotions. Soulish condemnation and spirit condemnation are not the same. Even though the soul and the spirit are carried in the same body, the soul and the spirit are two very distinct realms of man and they are not to be confused with one another kind of like feet and lips, okay? They're on the same body. I walk with my feet and I talk with my lips. I never talk with my feet and I never walk with my lips, but they're in the same body. So it is with the soul and spirit. They have different functions. Nonetheless, they are in the same body. We know that the Apostle Paul was talking about the spirit realm and not the soulish realm when he penned those words found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. How do we know that he was talking about the soulish realm? Because we still experience a measure of condemnation in our minds, our will, and our emotions. Condemnation manifests in the form of fear, guilt, shame, unworthiness. I mean, there's many ways that it manifests. But that's what it is, and it's trapped inside only our soulish realm. And there's good news. It can go. And I'll tell you what, in these three years that we've had this ministry here, I've just felt the Lord just freeing myself just from so much soulish condemnation. I, I just, it's, it's amazing. I know he's doing that in your hearts as well. If we feel like we have to build our own tower to heaven through performance, then a residue of soulish condemnation is at work. You see, not only were our sins nailed to the cross, but through the revelation of grace, we come to the realization that our bricks and our mortar and our trowel of contribution was also nailed to his cross. But only grace will show you that. Only grace will reveal that to you. It is a finished work, and Jesus did it without my tools, and he doesn't need my tools to maintain or to keep my righteousness in perfect condition. His blood is sufficient. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, we find this truth. I love these scriptures. They're three of my favorites. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, is when you were in your worst state, dead in your sins, uncircumcised in your flesh, he said, that's when my Father made you alive in me. Watch what he says now. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to his cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Friends, we possess a priceless gift. We are the carriers of a priceless gift. The gift of grace has taken away every sin. It's taken away every stain. It's taken away every spot. It's taken away every wrinkle. It's taken away every single blemish. Now, if we believe this, and this is true, then why do we have a hard time believing that grace can't remove the residue of a sticky fork, even a mess of our own making? Why would we have a hard time believing that? Friends, it is not possible 
But if it were possible for man to mess up the gift of righteousness, then trust me, he would find a way, just like he did in the beginning. Did you catch what I said? It's not possible, but if it were possible, man would find a way. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, we find this word. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. I mean, so far, it's just kind of like a little house on the prairie episode. I mean, you almost hear the violin playing here. Now the whole world had one language. How beautiful would that be? Everybody speaking the same language. You don't have to worry about understanding what they're saying. Everybody one language. And a common speech. And they all moved together. They all went in the same direction. They all went eastward. And they found a little house on the prairie. And they decide to settle there. Then they said to each other, they're talking, they're communicating, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they're working together. It's a good thing when men work together like this. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. I mean, so far, I don't have a problem with this story, do you? But it takes a curve here. It goes south. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Now, you can get the flavor how this has changed. It's all about us now. It's all about we. It's about let us build for ourselves. As we would say today, let us build a doctrine. Let us build a religious system. Let us build a sacred cow. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Do you see where they were going? They want to make a name for themselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord is watching all this. And I can only hear him saying, listen, you guys were doing great. You were communicating, you were in one agreement, you were in one accord. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to work your way to me. You're trying to work your way up to me. It's not a system I want to partner with you on. So I'm going to have to do something about this. And it continues. It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. To me, that just that's fascinating that God said that. He said, you're absolutely in agreement. You're working together. And he said, no matter what you set your heart to do, you're going to do it. Nothing's going to be impossible for them. Through what appears to be some sort of little harmless Jack and the Beanstalk story, we are taught one of the greatest truths of the Bible. It is the power of agreement, or another way to say it, it's the power of covenant. Covenant is agreement with another person or party. Friends, one of the quickest ways to shake the viper of soulish condemnation off of you is to come into agreement with what God says about you. Selah. That means pause and think about that. That is one of the quickest ways to shake that viper of condemnation off of you. Just like Paul did in, in Acts 28 there when the viper came out from the wood and fastened itself on his hand and just shook it off into the flame and felt no ill effect. How do you do it? You come into agreement with what God says about you because we have just learned the power of agreement, the power of unity, the power of speaking the same language. He calls you beautiful. He calls you lovely. He calls you perfect. He calls you very good. He calls you clean. He says you are forgiven much. And he says you are without spot and you are without 
wrinkle. I turned the preacher off this morning. Valerie had one going in the bedroom. I know this guy well. I like him. I like him a lot. But when he started saying, we're all sinners, I said, turn him off, man. I, I grabbed that remote control. I said, no, we are not. Steve, I like what you said here not too long ago. I don't know, last week or a couple weeks ago, Paul didn't open up his letter and saying, to all the sinners at Corinth. You know, he didn't. He said, to all the saints. Listen, don't call me by what I'm not, okay? I mean, listen, if you want to call me Mike, I'll, I'll say, yeah, what do you want? You want to call me James, that's my middle name, I'll say, yeah, what do you want? I don't get too bent out of shape, but don't call me a sinner because I'm not a sinner, okay? I am the righteousness of God in Christ, and so are you. Let's agree what God says. God calls you all these lovely, wonderful, precious names, and then we would call ourselves something less than that? We would see ourselves like that mangled $100 bill when God says, I see you clean. I see you perfect. Continue looking at that sixth verse. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Do you see the unity? Do you see the agreement? Do you see the covenant that they're working with? Why is it important for believers to understand agreement or covenant? Why is that important? Because Jesus is in a covenant with his Father, and that which is true about Jesus' covenant with his Father is also true about our covenant with the Father. Because Jesus lives inside of us and we live inside of him. There's not two different covenants here, okay? The Bible declares in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, these words. Hereby know that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And then he says, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Let me stop here for a second and say this. That third word where it says, whosoever shall confess. Confess. It is where we get the Greek word, hama lageo. When you look that up in the Bible, in the concordance, the first word you see for hama lageo is covenant. Isn't that interesting? It literally means to say the same thing as another or to agree with what was just said. And what was just said there is, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him. We've made getting saved way too complicated. Listen, I've led a lot of people to Jesus. I've led them down that road, that Romans road. I've led them through the sinner's prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. But according to the scripture right here, it says, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. Mama, God is love. Papa, God is love. God is love. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, who is he? Christ. As he is, so are we in this world. Not on funny Friday in heaven. In this world. We are the same as him in this world. Please take that home and meditate on that, okay? Eat on that. Feed on that. As he is, he's talking about Christ, as he is, so are we in this world. How is he? Full of grace, full of truth. 
And the Bible says, out of His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. We are full of grace and truth. You know what? I just happen to believe that. I hope in your heart you're wrapping your arms around that going, yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's exactly who I am. Yeah, soulish condemnation will try to raise its head once in a while, but that is not who I am. This is who I am, full of Jesus, full of grace, full of truth. We are the radiance of God's glory. We are the exact imprint of his nature. We are superior to angels, and we have inherited his name. It's the name the Bible says that's above every name. It's the name that says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord's. These are truths that we need to confess or agree upon. Hama lageo. Amen? It is by grace that our daddy sees us in the exact same manner as he sees his son Jesus. Only grace could do that. We don't have to build any towers to heaven. We don't have to make a name for ourselves. We don't have to make bricks. We don't have to keep making payments on canceled debts. The power of agreeing with these truths displace the taskmaster that drives you and me to keep ourselves perfect, to build our own towers. It displaces him. I don't have to rebuke the taskmaster. All I got to do is agree with what God says, and it forces his lie right out of my life right out of my mind. It gets rid of that residue of soulish condemnation. The homologeo, the confession, the agreement that we are perfect in daddy's eyes, swallows up all soulish condemnation and leaves no residue behind it, even licks that up. No more sticky pancakes and no more stinky skunks. We are forever the righteousness of God in Christ, and we are a sweet-smelling Savior in the nostrils of our Father. So why? Why is it so hard for us to believe that we are perfect in Daddy's eyes? Why? Why is that so hard for us to get? I'll tell you why. It's because you and I measure our perfection by our actions, by our words, and by our deeds and thoughts. If we use this metric as our scale, then we will end up in self-righteousness. Good because we are good and not because Jesus is good. I want to tell you something. You're good because Jesus is good. We wouldn't even be together if it wasn't for Jesus. We are good because Jesus, the Father, has made us good. Now, friends, let me show you these scriptures where Daddy calls us perfect. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin. Who's that priest? It's Jesus, isn't it? Had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. I want you to remember that. He sat down where? What side? The right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Meditate on that right there for a second. For by one sacrifice, he, that's Christ, has made perfect. And when you look up that word perfect, it literally means finished. I told you, we're a finished work ministry. He has finished the work. He has made perfect. And how long? Forever. And that literally means perpetually, it means eternally, forever, who are being made holy. Did you notice that Jesus did all the work? You weren't even in there. He gave it to you as a gift. Did you notice that Jesus did all the work? 
It will help us to know that our less than perfect actions come out of our souls. But our less than perfect actions do not define the man and they do not defile the spirit. Quit beating yourself up. If you fail, don't beat yourself up. It doesn't defile your spirit. It doesn't define who you are. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You know, I looked in the bathroom mirror this morning and I said, I couldn't help but think about my papa when I said that. I said, Mark, you're the righteousness of God in Christ. And I couldn't help but think, man, I wonder if papa's going to say that this morning. I hope you are, papa, when you look in that mirror. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Why doesn't it define the man or defile the spirit? Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. What has he made perfect forever? Those. (laughs) He has made perfect forever. Those. I'm glad he didn't say it. Because it could be just anything, you know. I'm glad he said those. That's you and that's me. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now let me show you what daddy does for us once he has made us perfect forever. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Did you see what daddy did? After he made us perfect, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. I love hardwood floors. I, they just, I don't know, I just love hardwood floors. But over the years, they get kind of in rough shape or if they haven't been taken care of. But you go in with a sander and you sand them all down. You get rid of all that old stuff up on top of them. And you clean up all that dust. And then you lay your varnish, you lay your stain on there. But you're not done. What about if you track in water or snow? It's going to melt. It's going to go down into the pores of that floor. And it's going to cause some buckling, some warping. You seal your floor with polyurethane. What polyurethane does is it goes over that floor and it goes right down into those pores. So when you come in with those snowy boots, you don't have to be so concerned because your floor has been sealed. In other words, it's been protected. And that's what the Holy Spirit has done to us. He has sealed us in this state of perfection so that we will never warp, we will never chip, we will never fade, we will never get stained ever again. That's what the Holy Spirit has done for us. It doesn't matter if one man has been saved for a hundred years and another man has been saved for 100 seconds. Each one of those men are 100% perfect in their spirit man and they are sealed in that state of perfection forever. The next time condemnation comes knocking on your heart's door, let it know that it's not welcome and that it's not part of your inheritance package. Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 10, I am come that you might have life and more abundantly. How can I enjoy abundant life if I'm carrying a pancake in my pocket or a skunk in my trunk? I can't really, can I? 
Jesus said, I've done away with this stuff, okay? I've done away with your sticky residue in your spirit man. And I can do away with it in your soulish man too as you come into agreement with what I say about you. This is such a fundamental and such a simple truth, but I'm passionate about it because I see believers not being able to live to their fullness, being beat up all the time and whatnot. Listen, I see this all the time. We don't have to live that way. We can live to the fullness. Jesus said, I've come that you might have abundant life. And he said, I want to give you that abundant life right now. This is not heaven someday. This is right now. Soulish condemnation is no respecter of persons. It knocks on the hearts of the saved and the unsaved. It knocks on the heart of the pastor and the parishioner. It knocks on the heart of the wise and the simple. It knocks on the heart of the rich and the poor. It is no respecter of persons. In my descent, as I'm trying to wind down here, I want to give you a Bible illustration of soulish condemnation. Okay, watch this now. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now hold on here a second. The beggar in this story has spent a lifetime begging for bread. The Bible says that he had been crippled from birth. So he has spent a lifetime begging for bread. Therefore, he was conditioned. He was conditioned to beg for his daily pancakes. The same mentality has infiltrated the church through erroneous teaching, skewed expectations and interpretations, and runaway thoughts feelings and emotions much of the body of christ is begging daddy to supply their need now there's nothing wrong with asking daddy to meet a need but we do not have to be a beggar we do not have to beg daddy sadly this is how many believers approach their father when praying not realizing that their qualification for the promises of god's provision are theirs through the lord jesus not by begging but by believing just that easy you don't have to beg god you don't have to beg jesus you believe Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God, he told you that's going to save you. It's going to heal you. It's going to prosper you. It's going to do all kinds of wonderful things in your life. It's the same answer to every situation with God. In Psalm 37, verse 25, the psalmist said, I have been young and am old now, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed begging bread. I think that's very interesting that he would put those two things in the same scripture. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, so quit worrying about that. And I've never seen one happen to beg bread, so quit worrying about that or begging daddy for anything. You are the righteousness of God. In Christ. Oh, it makes me very happy on the inside when I think about this. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was there lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When the beggar saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Now watch this. I want you to note that the beggar saw, look at the scripture, the beggar saw Peter and John. Does it say that? It says the beggar saw them, didn't it? Uh-huh. That means the beggar had eyes to see as he looked at them. Yet Peter said to the beggar, look at us. That's weird. 
The Bible just says the beggar saw them and he asked them for money and then Peter and John stop and the first thing that Peter says is look at us. That means the beggar must have looked down or he must have looked away because he wasn't looking at them when he said look at us. This beggar was under such condemnation that he couldn't even maintain eye contact for a second. Condemnation will do that to you. Friends, soulish condemnation has turned the church in many ways into a beggar, and it has robbed the church of her confidence and her boldness to be able to climb up into the lap of her heavenly father. The church has been afraid that they're going to get some sort of pancake syrup on daddy and get him sticky somehow with all their stuff. Friends, the way to get the residue of soulish condemnation off of you is to climb up into the lap of daddy and look him in the eyes. I want you to do that. The next time soulish condemnation tries to knock on your door, I want you to see yourself climbing up into the laps of your heavenly father and being able to look up into his eyes, not having him say, look at me but being able to look right in his eyes and then listen as he whispers into your heart unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, unconditional grace. His words will permeate the space that was once occupied by soulish condemnation and just flush it right out. When the beggar saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand. You remember I told you to remember that? Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God. You can tell that the condemnation is gone. Not only are his legs functional now, but the condemnation is gone because he is now going into the temple, into the place where all the ministers are at. He doesn't care. He's walking and he's leaping like a calf that has just been released from the stall. He's like a little kid. Oh, I want you to notice that the man that couldn't keep his eyes on Peter and John because of soulish condemnation is walking and leaping and praising God. What was the turning point for this beggar? How did he become so instantly free of soulish condemnation? I believe it was when Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. The condemnation that kept this beggar bound began in his limbs and the proliferated into his soul was broken off of him when that beggar placed his trust solely in the name of Jesus. Why do we complicate this thing? All he did was place his trust in the name of Jesus. He said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. The beggar didn't need a 12-step program he just needed one right hand. Put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the seas. Oh, man, when Peter reached out to him with his right hand, 
He was offering the salvation of the man that is seated next to his father at the right-hand side. His name is Jesus. And that's what he was doing. You say, well, Mark, that was Peter. That wasn't Jesus that gave him the right hand. You remember the former scriptures? As he is, so are we in this world. See, this is Acts chapter 3. Jesus has already been crucified. Jesus has already been buried. Jesus has already been risen from the dead. And he brought in a new covenant. My closing scriptures, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That word profess, hamalageo, it's that same exact word of confess, profess, same thing, hamalageo. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Watch this now. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, a wonderful assurance that reaches out to us from the scriptures to remind us that Jesus died once for all. He died for our sins and he died to free us from the residue of soulish condemnation. Father, I am delighted in my heart today, Daddy. I thank you for this word. I thank you, Father, that you have made it so simple. We make it so complicated. You make it so easy, Daddy. I'm going to trust that your way is best, that we can see ourselves the next time we're faced with fear, the next time we're faced with guilt and shame and unworthiness and so many other manifestations, we can see ourselves climbing up into the lap of our daddy, looking up into your brilliant eyes full of love as you whisper into our hearts reassuring things like you're the apple of my eye, you're the righteousness of my son Jesus. Daddy, that truth begins to take root in our hearts so that we will not believe the enemy when he comes in and he tries to put that residue of soulish condemnation on us. Daddy, I thank you for this great love and I thank you, Father, for this great freedom and it all comes by grace. In Jesus' name, amen.